Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, we're going to talk about uh, the church today, and we're specifically going to ask and hopefully answer a question, uh, what is the church? We also want to move into the idea of how does the church, uh, how is the church characterized? What are its distinguishing marks? And then we want to explore briefly how does the church work within the Presbyterian tradition and particularly PCA Presbyterianism. So if you have your Bibles open, we're going to look at Ephesians 2, that classic passage about Christ as the cornerstone, but we'll begin in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, um, but you were fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's uh, open together with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift, the church, which is your family in this world and the next. We ask, Lord, as we consider a little bit about uh, this gift that you've given, uh, that you would help us to understand it in light of your word, for surely it was created by your word. And uh, we ask that you would be with us in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. At the confirmation hearing for our most recent Supreme Court Justice, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, United States Senator Marsha Blackburn, a member of a PCA church in Nashville, asked the Supreme Court nominee to define the word woman. I can't, Jackson replied. You can't, Blackburn said. Not in this context. I'm not a biologist, Jackson said. The meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition, Blackburn asked. The Tennessee senator's line of questioning hit on nearly every current political hot-button issue, from critical race theory to teaching children about gender identity in schools to the problem of transgender athletes competing on women's women's sports teams. Senator, I'm not sure what message that sends. If you're asking me about legal issues related to it, those are topics that are being hotly uh, discussed, as you say, and could come to the court, Jackson replied. Well, just as our uh, newest Supreme Court Justice Uh, The Honorable Ketanji Brown-Jackson in her Judiciary uh, Committee interview was unable to say what a woman is. 
so too modern evangelicals have struggled greatly with asking the question, what is a church? What is the church? It is not too much to say that they do not have a good answer. To some, especially those that come from the Roman or the high church tradition, the church is defined by its relationship to its bishop and that bishop to a sort of apostolic succession, a physical line going back to Peter. For others, especially our brothers and sisters in the more congregational tradition, the church is defined by what its congregation, made up exclusively of regenerate uh, believers, says that its own confession is, whatever that confession may be. The Presbyterian and Reformed churches do, however, have a doctrine of the church. The Reformed are uh, very clear about what the visible institutional church is. It's best described in our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25. And let me briefly remind you of what our own denominational standards say that the church is. It says, uh, and I'm going to give you a big idea for each section. We're not going to treat this exhaustively like Dr. Phillips does on Wednesday night. It says uh, that the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, and here's the big idea I want you to see, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness, and uh, uh, that filleth all in all. It says that the church is primarily made up of those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children. Uh, It says that the church's purpose is uh, to give the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God. It says that the church can be sometimes more, sometimes less visible. It says that there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. And then lastly, it reminds us that the head of the church always and will only be Christ, the Lord Jesus. Uh, It cannot be in any sense someone else on this earth. So we see here this idea that leads us to the very theological but very practical question of what is a church and when is a church not a church? How do we recognize the true church of Jesus Christ today and how we discern the faults? John Calvin's answer was to give us three distinguishing marks these three marks of the church would come to characterize a a Protestant and and particularly a Reformed understanding of what is a church. And let me say I'm borrowing heavily from Bob Godfrey today in a lecture he gave for Ligonier Ministries. The ministry of the word and sacraments is how John Calvin would often begin to describe the work and the marks of the church. The ministry of the word and of the sacraments of baptism and of the Lord's Supper are the hallmarks of the true church along with biblical church government. Where these are lacking, Calvin would say, surely the death of the church follows. Why should this be? Because the church is built on the prophets and the apostles, as we've read in our passage in Ephesians 2. They have a primary role 
in the in the purpose of of God in redemptive history. <clears throat> Their teaching is the foundation for every generation of the Christian faith. Substitute another foundation for the church, and the whole building crumbles. Uh, it is literally uh, the cornerstone. In Calvin's views, the Roman Catholic Church and its theology failed to grasp this and effectively transferred the authority of the once-for-all written apostolic word to the strength of a claim of a chain of bishops in varying degrees of orthodoxy and reliability. This notion of succession of bishops, while it may be attractive, doesn't guarantee faithfulness and fruitfulness as defined by the Bible. This is precisely why we have the written scriptures, the truth of God, the revealed will of God, the purposes of God revealed in the writings of God himself uh, to be a guiding touchpoint for us in every generation. And it's why our church, unlike the Roman Catholic Church, must be founded upon biblical a prioritization rather than tradition or the so-called teaching of the fathers. This is why Calvin's departure from the idea of a succession of bishops as being the foundation of the church was not schism. For how could agreement with God's word be considered schism from the church? We see that if the truth be told, it was not Calvin and his teachings in Geneva, but Rome itself that was schismatic. More than that, Rome harbors, Bob Godfrey says, idolatry within its bosom, which we must abominate as the greatest sacrilege. Uh, and he's referring to the idea of the mass replacing the worship of the one true God. Yet it remains true, Calvin says, that there are believers, however confused, within the pale of Rome. Correspondingly, there are traces of churches, but Rome itself cannot be considered a true church or part of the one true church. Rome gives uh, an expression even of, of Antichrist, Calvin would say. So the truth is that the heart may be regenerated, but the head is not finally cleaned, uh, cleansed. Calvin appears to have thought that there were some true believers within the Roman church, however inconsistent their theology may be. He understood, and while he disapproved, he struggled to exercise wisdom and patience, but in the end, he felt that Christ was being obscured in the Roman church. He set forth the idea that there should be three distinguishing marks uh, that characterized what is a true church, and those are preaching, the right observation of the sacraments and right administration, and then church discipline. Let me briefly go into that. This is the heart of my argument today for you. A faithful preaching is the first mark of the church because preaching most directly brings God's word to his people. Uh, the, the, the hallmark of a Christian church ought to be that Christian preaching is where God's people find life and grace and strength and power, and those are the things which renew, which instruct, which reproof, which calls us in our minds to be renewed and to be sanctified. The reformers stressed that God's great means of speaking to his people was preaching. Martin Luther talked of the several forms that the word takes. The first is the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, 
The second form the word takes is the incarnate word, Jesus. The third is the inscripturated word, the Bible. The fourth is the shouted word, preaching. At the heart of Christian worship and life is the ministry of the word in preaching. If preaching is not faithful, the life of the church cannot be faithful. It is an essential mark of the true church. Calvin added that the first mark of the church is not just faithful preaching. A man standing on a street corner may be faithfully declaring the word, but there is no church. Calvin said that in a true church, a further dimension of that mark is that the word of God must be faithfully heard and received. Reformed worship is sometimes called a dialogue between God and his people. God speaks and his people responds. Calvin's point is that if God speaks through the preaching of his word and no one is listening and responding, there is no church. When the word is faithfully preached and received, there the mark of the church can be seen. The second point that Calvin brings to us is this notion of sacraments, of the faithful administration of the sacraments. At first, we might be tempted to think that this mark is really just a grievance that Calvin may have had against the Roman notions of sacraments, which stressed the absolute centrality of the seven ritually kept sacraments. Did the Reformers make the sacraments a mark of the church just to distinguish their teaching of two sacraments from the sacraments of Rome, one might ask. The Reformers certainly had a more fundamental concern than just to separate from Rome. They were convinced that the sacraments were a kind of fifth form of the word, one might say, the visible word. The sacraments are the great drama of redemption. They display the gospel. They... uh, we see here in, in, in both the, the words of Calvin and Augustine this, this phrase, the visible word. Baptism shows us that we are saved only by the washing away of sin in Jesus. And the Lord's Supper shows us that we live only through the body and blood of Christ <clears throat> offered as a sacrifice on the cross. These sacraments are an observable mark of the true church. In a true church, the biblical sacraments are faithfully observed and received. The third mark of the church uh, that was developed out of Calvin's writings is the exercise of discipline taught in Scripture, and it demonstrates the church's determination to pursue holy living before the Lord. Now, discipline is not a word that readily is on the lips of most people this day, certainly not on our children. Uh, Discipline can have both a a positive and a kind of negative application. Uh, In this sense, I I want you to see it as both. I want you to see it both as something that we should not do, but something that we should gladly receive. Paul clearly insists that each church should exercise discipline. Discipline is necessary to uh, God's people. Uh, Where such discipline is missing the church is not recognizable as a holy community. Each of these three marks, preaching, the sacraments, and discipline, uh, are an expression of the one great mark of the Christian church, and that is the word of God. When each mark uh, expresses an aspect of God's word, uh, life, and power in the church, the true church submits to the word of God. As Tertullian said, 
there are true churches which hold to what they received from the apostles. God's appointment, uh, by God's appointment, the church is a vital and necessary institution. I hope you'll come to see that Calvin's three marks are an ideal way to think about what is a church. And I hope it'll be useful for you as you answer that question. Now, to be fair, the Roman Catholic Church has their own uh, self-attesting and self-authenticating four marks of the church. Let me briefly just point to this. Uh, The Catholic rubric, the formula that they will use is the one in our creed, that there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And there certainly is a sense in which we as evangelical and Protestant and Reformed Christians can and must uh, confess this. Though I would suggest to you that what uh, our Catholic friends are saying is different uh, than what the words were intended to originally mean. Notice how the marks of the church in a Catholic worldview is self-authenticating and self-attesting and points back to the authority of the church as opposed to the authority of the Bible. And then in recent years, there's been kind of a a resurgence in the idea of studying the church uh, from a Protestant point of view, and there's been something of a a resurgence from uh, folks within even our own family of tradition. And I want to give a little bit of a plug to my friend Mark Dever, who developed his nine marks uh, of the church. And while many of these, I would suggest, are subsumed within Calvin's own three marks, It's worth noting uh, how Dever accentuates what I would suggest to you is oftentimes the byproduct uh, of a true church. But nevertheless, let me just run through these because I think they're so helpful and have been found to be so useful. Uh, Dever wants to suggest that a true church is is characterized by expository preaching. Uh, It's characterized by biblical theology. It's characterized by biblical understanding of the good news, that is, the gospel. Uh, It's characterized by conversion. Now, that's going to be a Baptist emphasis on the notion of a regenerate church membership, but we certainly believe in conversion as well. It's going to be characterized by individuals committed to personal acts of evangelism, that is, that a Christian should be willing, able, and always ready to share their faith. It should be characterized by biblical understanding of membership. Now, again, Presbyterians may quibble about who is properly a member in the church, but I think we all want to promote the understanding that membership is a privilege and a responsibility. Uh, Dever notes it should be characterized by biblical church disciplines. Uh, Churches should have front doors and back doors that both open and lock. It should be characterized by Discipleship and growth, that's a word-driven sanctification that often takes place in the context of Bible study, prayer, and devotion that promotes holy living. And then lastly, it should promote biblical understandings of leadership, not some notion of apostolic succession, but God-ordained and called men who are called out of the world and Uh, instructed and discipled into being made elders and deacons and pastors within the church. All of these, I think, are excellent uh, points for us to consider. I think they find uh, their way into Calvin's three marks, but I think it's a useful thing for you to hear because it's such an interesting conversation starter in the evangelical church today, and I want to commend Dever for what he's done. 
Well, um, as we move into the idea of what is the church, I hope I've given you a clear and convincing uh, test for you to apply uh, to uh, your own pursuit and understanding of what is the church. Maybe the Lord is going to call you uh, to to work or to live in another place. Uh, Maybe the Lord is going to cause you uh, to be a part of a church plant one day. Uh, It's so very useful for you to consider what are these distinguishing marks of a church and is the church that you are a part of pursuing that. Well, in the, in the minutes that I have left, I want to kind of apply this to how Presbyterians uh, have applied the three marks uh, to not only our notions of the church, but the outgrowth of that in our polity. Uh, Presbyterian polity is the application of a biblical understanding of church government uh, to the here and now. Bob Raymond famously said, governance of the church should be by elders in courts, Uh, Now, that's an expression that Presbyterians will use for sessions, presbyteries, and the General Assembly. Uh, These courts will be made up of officers uh, who execute their biblical responsibilities in unison and in parity with one another. And so uh, that's to promote this idea that what the session does is analogous to what a presbytery does. That is a a region of, of a family of churches and then to a general assembly, which is a national or international gathering of people. Uh, And that this parity reflects both a a healthy tension and a balance between ministers and elders, or what we in the PCA call teaching and ruling elders. Uh, And in addition to this, uh, this, uh, these elders work uh, with the material care of the service being looked after by God-ordained deacons uh, under the supervision of the elders. And so that's what Raymond's definition of Presbyterian polity is. Now, uh, in, in I'm going to take this uh, Sunday school lesson to a place that perhaps only Pat Holbrook would appreciate. Uh, the, the Lord has given us uh, an expression of Presbyterian polity known as the PCA, and the PCA is an attempt to do... Uh, historic Presbyterianism in a kind of an American fashion, uh, and, and particularly we like to emphasize that we're uh, bottom-up Presbyterians. Uh, and that means that the PCA version of Presbyterianism is going to highly accentuate and uh, fixate, you might even say, on the notion of local church and Presbytery theological control. Uh, Historically, Presbyterianism has been sort of top-down. The PCA turned that around and has made it bottom-up. And so uh, around the time that folks were gathered in Philadelphia to write our Constitution, uh, Presbyterians were gathered at the same uh, time down the street uh, writing something called the Book of Church Order. Uh, Parts of the Book of Church Order are actually older than America. Uh, you might say. And the Book of Church Order is kind of a 250-year-old agreement on how churches ought to order themselves, how they ought to be managed. And in the Book of Church Order, there are uh, preliminary principles, which kind of function as our Declaration of Independence. And then there is the uh, the first section, which is known as the form of government. And I want to very briefly run through these 
not to bore you to tears, uh, but, but also not to demonstrate the classic example of when a wife asks a husband to put a piece of machinery together and he does it without looking at the instructions. Uh, the, the BCO functions almost like a set of instructions that you ought to read before you try to put something together. Because inevitably, when you put it together and it doesn't work, you go back to the instructions and you say, oh, if I had just known that definition or if I would just known that process or if I would just known that that's what that meant. Uh, the book of church order is, is a guide to how churches ought to work. And so I'm going to very briefly summarize some definitions for you. Many of you will know these already, but I think it's helpful for us to hear this because it's how... Uh, our own church principally is trying to govern itself. The, the first chapter gives us simple definitions of what is Presbyterian church government. And it uses several words that I think we ought to all know. Uh, Presbyterian government is representative. Uh, we are not governed by a bishop uh, that is, uh, has his power exclusive from the church nor are we governed by the consent of the people in the sense of like a New England Democratic town hall. Uh, We elect leaders. Those leaders have an internal sense of call from God. That sense of call is tested by the church. The church participates in training those men, and then the elders lay hands upon those men, and those men become our representative leaders. The representative principle is at the heart of Presbyterian church government. Uh, We shouldn't be afraid to use the word Catholic. Catholic in its original sense simply means the universal or the the worldwide church. And there is a sense in which a biblical church government itself uh, should look the same wherever the church is. Uh, One of the the most significant uh, aspects of Presbyterian notions of the church is that it includes believers, but also their children. Uh, and this compensate this uh, co- consolidates this notion uh, of the covenant family being a part of the church. In the Presbyterian Church, we'll see there is a distinction made between a communing believers, that is, a, a person who has professed faith uh, before the session and the church, uh, and those who have not. And non-communing members uh, are are the way in which we designate our children. Uh, one of the great principles, Dr. Phillips oftentimes will say this in a session meeting, is that power should be uh, joint and not several. And what that means is that the collective decision of the body is the decision of the church. Individual leaders do not uh, exercise power unilaterally. They exercise it jointly with others. And then another feature a Presbyterian government is that our officers are ordained. And then the last principle in chapter one is that a church government is necessary uh, for uh, the well-being of God's people. Uh, chapter two of the book of church order uh, speaks of uh, the church as being part of a monarchy. And that kind of offends us, doesn't it, a little bit on the, on the edge of July 4th. Uh, our, our nation is not a monarchy. We left a monarchy. But the kingdom of God is a monarchy. And on the throne is King Jesus, and we are part of his visible kingdom of grace. Uh, denominations should not be considered unbiblical uh, if they are true, if they are biblical. 
and churches should be everywhere. This notion that uh, the visible church, which means simply God's people in every time, in every place, all that that, uh, we can see are part of the visible kingdom of grace. And then we go to this, uh, this is a fascinating chapter in the book of church order on what power does the church have. Well, the power rests in leadership. Uh, The power, and here's another great phrase, is ministerial and declarative. Uh, I, as an elder, or the session collectively, uh, cannot tell you that you have to give someone a car because they need it, for example. Um, I I often tell this story. Uh, My father, for many years, uh, would have coffee on Saturday mornings uh, with the Monsignor at the local Catholic church. And for a long time, the Monsignor would complain to my dad about that the Catholics weren't behaving him at his church, or, or, or uh, that's right, um, behaving him, uh, obeying him is what I meant to say. And uh, my father would listen patiently, and then one Saturday morning he said to him, you're a Catholic priest. You can just tell them what to do. Well, that doesn't happen in a Presbyterian church. Uh, the, the power in the Presbyterian church is to tell you what the Bible says you have to do. Uh, the, the power of the, of the session of the officers is spiritual. It's not a legal power. And ultimately, the power in a Presbyterian church uh, rests in what we call the means of grace, those things God has given us to build us up in our faith. <clears throat> the fourth chapter talks about a particular church, that is a church that uh, has been planted and grown and has now uh, been constituted by the Presbyterian Church. It's a community made up of Christian families. Its officers are elders and deacons. Uh, the jurisdiction, that is the limit of its authority, uh, is governed by its officers. Uh, the church is characterized primarily by its worship. Uh, and it's a church that's always meeting. It's always assembling. We see in chapter 5 of the Book of Church Order clear instructions that churches ought to be planting other churches. We ought to be missions-minded. One of our purposes is not simply to gather in, but to send out. And so you have lots of principles in chapter 5. This is actually the Book of Church Order chapter, I think, that has changed the most in the PCA's history. But it relates to the idea of starting, overseeing, relating a church to its presbytery, training its officers, helping it establish deacons, and and teaching it how to care for its member. Chapter 5 is about spiritual multiplication through church planting. Chapter 6 is a wonderful chapter that talks about who are the members of a Presbyterian church. Children are members. They're members through their relationship with their parents. They're called non-communing members. They have privileges, privileges of receiving the word, privileges of instruction. Communing members are are adults uh, or children who have made a public profession of faith. Uh, Members have certain entitlements. Uh, You have a right for the church to pray for you. You have a right for the church to be involved with you spiritually. You also have privileges which you need to exercise. You need to exercise the privilege of coming to church, of receiving God's word as it's preached and also as it's made uh, available to you through baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
The seventh chapter is one of my favorites in the book of church order. It's essentially telling you what church officers aren't supposed to do. Uh, We had a big debate about adding something to this chapter this summer at General Assembly. Uh, An officer in the PCA, uh, this kind of the male interpretation of BCO7, is not an apostle, is not extraordinary, is not a lone ranger, and is not a usurper. Uh, If you're out there and you're thinking about uh, testing a sense of call to be a deacon or an elder uh, in this church, if you think you're an apostle, BCO7 says you are not qualified to be an officer in the PCA. But it also is an encouragement to us to be Presbyterian in the way we do our business. Uh, Pursue your ministry through, uh, through the ordinary means of grace by working together with others in a fashion that builds up and does not tear down the body. Uh, Chapter 8 defines what an elder is. It's someone who should be dignified and useful. It's someone who's biblically qualified, according to Timothy and Titus. It's someone whose life should be characterized by duty, a kind of Christian view of duty. Uh, There's this notion that elders can be both ruling elders and teaching elders. And so, There's a section in there that reminds us that teaching elders are specially commissioned by God to serve as ministers. Uh, They should cooperate with ruling elders and the governance of the church. Uh, Teaching elders are members of a presbytery. This is another distinguishing mark between, say, a Baptist and a Presbyterian church. Our ministers are actually not members, properly speaking, of this church. They're members of the presbytery. And a teaching elder and a ruling elder is understood to be one office with two different functions. Chapter 9 is a wonderful chapter in the book of church order, and it details for us what deacons should do. Uh, I've often viewed uh, this chapter as it's just fantastic. Some of the phrases in this chapter we've actually adapted as names of some of our committees in in the church here. A deacon should be characterized by sympathy and service. They should be servant leaders. They should take care of the building and property. They should be involved in mercy ministry. They should be promoting the liberality of the saints. And they should be assisting the elders in their ministry. Uh, BCO chapter 9 also talks about the wonderful way in which uh, members work with the deacons and the elders Uh, to do the ministry of the church. I know of no church that does this better than second through its koinonia ministry, uh, which is just a wonderful picture of BCO 9, Chapter 7, of members of the church assisting the officers of the church in loving and helping God's people in practical and real world life need ways. Uh, Chapter 10 and 11 talks about this notion of uh, the, the courts of the church, It's not unlike local, state, and national government. We have a session. We have a presbytery, which would be like a a state or a regional government, and then we have a national or international government called the General Assembly. Uh, In these chapters, you see that the powers given to the session, the General Assembly, the presbytery, uh, are are very similar. They, uh, They need to be spiritual and not civil, They need to promote Christ's doctrine, order, and worship, and they are represented uh, at each level by elected representatives. Uh, We see this flushed out a little bit more in chapters 12 through 15. 
Uh, what do these things do? They hold regular meetings. They're made up of ministers or commissioners in the case of ruling elders. They receive candidates. Uh, sometimes they create commissions uh, to accomplish things. They review and control the lower court, uh, and they receive complaints and appeals uh, from lower courts. Uh, moving along here, we see in chapters 16 through 19 chapters that deal with the process of a person having a sense of call to be a, a, a minister, uh, how they go about the process of, of being a candidate, an intern, a licentiate, and then being ordained. They need to have a sense of call. The church needs to recognize that and, and signify it. They need to test their gift through service. Uh, they need to have formal accountability to the church. They need to pursue education. They need to be examined by elders in the courts of the church. And then they need to practice it as a career or a calling. Uh, I'm so pleased that Second Church has been a part of something like 30 men going into PCA-ordained ministry. It's a remarkable legacy of this church. As we move into the uh, towards the, the sections I want to conclude with today, uh, there's uh, a wonderful section that deals with how does a church call a minister. Uh, there's a call, there's a congregational meeting, uh, the church court, the presbytery uh, receives that call from the hand of a ruling elder. Uh, the presbytery tests that call by examining the man. The man tells the court of the church if he has exceptions. Uh, that is a stated difference with the theolo theological teaching of the church. The court then tests that, examines it, and rules on that. And then the court uh, institutes a commission that lays hand on, on a man as he's ordained into ministry. The man takes vows, and there's even a process for how a, a church ought to amiably uh, dissolve a relationship between itself and a pastor. Uh, chapter 24 deals with electing officers, elders, and deacons. It's much like the process of, of uh, finding and, and installing a teaching elder. Uh, the idea is that you want to have not men just because they're men, but men who are qualified according to the Bible to lead. The BCO is an explicitly complementarian book. Uh, men who want to be deacons or elders ought to and should be trained. Uh, they, the congregation should vote on them. Their office is perpetual. That means if you're ordained a deacon in this church, even if you just serve a term of four years, you should come to view that as a life call. Um, much as uh, once you're a husband or, uh, or a wife, you will always be that. And so it is when the, the men of God lay hands on you, you should view yourself as, as your office as perpetual, and you should be held worthy of honor. And then the, the last two chapters we're going to look at today uh, deal with this idea of, of what is the congregation. Uh, Jack Williamson, who was a ruling elder, a, a lawyer from Greenville, Alabama, uh, who famously said that the PCA is the only Christian church in the history of the world that was founded by ruling elders, uh, also held that this chapter was somewhat sacred. Uh, and if you talk to older PCA folk, you'll come to understand uh, that uh, for older PCA folk, uh, the church's ability to own its own property and not to be interfered with legally from the Presbytery or the General Assembly was a main driving reason why the PCA was formed. If you have friends and 
the Methodist church right now or the Presbyterian church right now, you know that they're, they're nervous that they're going to lose buildings. Um, the, the church, the Anglican church in uh, Falls Church, Virginia, where George Washington was a member, lost their building because the Episcopal church said it belonged to them, not to that local congregation that is older than America. Uh, so in the PCA, when we began as a denomination, this is one of the applications of being bottom-up, is that we were never going to allow a centralized bureaucracy to own the physical assets of a congregation. Well, I don't want to get on a rant about BCO 25, but a local church owns its own properties. Uh, the PCA kind of made a pledge to its churches that it will never behave like the former denomination. And, and then there's a process of how you amend the Constitution, and even how you would join with another denomination that's set forth in those chapters. Well, there, there are other parts of the, of the BCO, which blessedly we will not go over today, uh, but they deal with how you do discipline and how the church ought to worship. Um, the third section on how the church ought to worship was actually written by the same men who wrote your Westminster Confession of Faith. And so there's some wonderful encouragement uh, and uh, uh, teaching on how you ought to observe your faith, both privately and as a family uh, and corporately as a church. Well, so what is a church? Uh, we're back at the question that I posed to you. Uh, I asked this question to the great theologian in my life, Mary Elizabeth Duncan, uh, this week, and she famously said, Dad, it's God's family. And I hope that that is how you will come to understand what the church is uh, in your own understanding of the Bible as it teaches us that it's a family of believers ordained by God. It's the only institution that will last from this age into the next age. It is uh, expressed somewhat uh, clearly at times, somewhat unclearly at times, but we're so blessed to be a part of a living branch of the body of Christ here at Second Church. Um, my hope is that your love, not only for this church, but for the church universal, uh, will uh, inspire you to get involved, to bear fruit, and to honor God through faithful membership and love for the brethren. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this family that you've given us in our life, this this eternal family, uh, this eternal institution. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, a faithful, multi-generational expression of that here at Second Perez. Uh, Lord, as this church continues to grow, we pray that you will help us to grow by our understanding and application of the Bible, uh, not only in, in spiritual ways, but in, in the practical outworking of that, uh, as the congregation of Second Presbyterian Church. Lord, may every person in this church come to know and love Christ Jesus, uh, feel uh, instructed and encouraged to live their faith in love, at peace with their neighbors, uh, and in bold witness for their Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.